0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week.
1: Take the quiz every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox.
2: From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We've had a very intense weekend. I was able to do One Nation Live for two hours on Saturday night. And, of course, the war has not stopped. And the threat of a two-front war is not, uh, has not subsided. In fact, it's coming becoming more of a reality. There are so many different aspects to the war in Israel. We'll try to go over that and also tell you that the President of the United States has canceled his trip to Colorado, where he was going to talk about how great wind was Fantastic. So he thought better of that. He might be going over to Israel. I don't know what the point of that would be. He had barely went to the Ukraine, but he wants to go over there. Uh, his secretary of state did just arrive there this morning. He's uh, doing the uh, the Middle East tour to try to get people to understand uh, how the gloves are going to come off because the Israelis are going to answer the October 7th attack. So let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's
4: Big Three. Number three. The current rules of the House have facilitated a handful of Republicans being able to determine what gets voted on in the House of Representatives, and that undermines the interests of the American people.
3: So that's part of the deal that Akeem Jeffries wants, because we have a house in chaos. Will Jim Jordan be the next speaker? No one thinks he has the votes in two weeks After foolishly ousting Kevin McCarthy, the embarrassment only grows and a push for a deal with Dems seems more likely. We'll discuss. Number
5: two, we're now second in Iowa, second in New Hampshire, second in South Carolina. We're going to keep on moving. Look, Americans get the fact that they need a new generational conservative leader because they don't want a president Kamala Harris.
3: That is Nikki Haley on with me Saturday night. 2024, the Republicans begin to make their Middle Eastern stance known and report their fundraising numbers. We bring you the latest polls, positions and more.
6: Number one, is Iran behind the Gaza
7: war? I don't want to get into classified information, but to be very blunt with you, there is no clear evidence of that.
3: Really? The invasion could begin today. There are already calls to pull it back before it started. We'll bring you all the aspects of the war in Israel. And part of the problem is the president... And his White House came in wanting to go and bring in Iran to a family of nations, tried to reinstall the nuclear deal that even the majority of the senators and Democrats did not vote for. But they wanted to put it back together. They allowed them to flow oil around the world from 400,000 barrels a day to over 4 million. They allowed them to uh, be able to trade openly. They allowed them to be able to um, exchange hostages for the $6 billion dollars. Uh, We know that that was part of the aspect of it, although Senator Schumer says Iran will not see a dollar of that part of the hostage trading deal. And then you'll find out when it comes to what's happening in the Middle East. Fast forward to the money restored to the Palestinians to just flat out do whatever they want to. We know it doesn't flow to the Palestinian people like we hope. It flows to Hamas like we feared. That is part of the policy of this administration. And that's part of the reason why I have no faith that their words, which seem right, will not refer, will not transform into action. The Israelis need room to operate. They need room to blow away the Hamas leaders who like to hide. They ambush, they kill old women and Holocaust survivors, they kill little children, and they hide. But they tape it, just in case you don't believe it. Here is uh, Anthony Blinken landing in uh, Cairo, Egypt, and then now we know he's now in uh, he's in Israel now. Cut one.
8: Rafa will be will be open. Uh, we're putting in place with the United Nations, with Egypt, with Israel, with others, the mechanism by which to get the assistance in and to get it to the people who need it. And that's exactly why uh, Ambassador Satterfield is now taking this on. The president appointed him today. He'll be here on the ground tomorrow. To work out all the practical details so we can move this forward. And
3: what Rafah is, is the exit. It's the exit from southern Gaza into Egypt. Egypt wants no part of it. Why? Because Hamas is a spinoff of Muslim Brotherhood, founded in the 1920s in Egypt. An enemy of the state, a terrorist organization that also gave birth to ISIS, Al Qaeda. You get it. So there you go. Egypt says, we don't want them here, and we don't want another catastrophe in our country. We're poor enough. But now we've convinced them through public pressure, I guess, and the billions of dollars we give them, perhaps, that Senator Menendez doesn't put in his coat pocket, I guess, is the leverage we need. But so far, I've been looking at video of this and seeing live feeds. There's not many people there, and they're not getting through. We don't want innocent people being killed in Gaza, but Hamas is solely responsible for that. I think people should understand that. It is Hamas, the brutal attack that transcended anything I've witnessed in my lifetime Or heard reported on, that's what took place. As General Petraeus said, "This is worse than 9/11 for Israel. It would be akin uh, by population size of us losing 40,000 people on 9/11." Here's Senator Tom Cotton, cut five.
9: As far as I'm concerned, Israel can bounce the rubble in Gaza. Anything that happens in Gaza is the responsibility of Hamas. Hamas killed women and children in Israel last weekend. If women and children die in Gaza, it will be because Hamas is using using them as human shields because they're not currently allowing them to uh, evacuate, as Israel has asked them to do so.
3: So Gaza is the size of Philadelphia, 25 miles long, uh, 5 miles wide, roughly. They have 150 hostages somewhere in there, we believe. 30 Americans are dead and 15 are thought to be held hostage. I'm surprised we don't have an exact number, but we thought to be held hostage And we hope they're all alive. What I'm wondering is, why are we not taking this more personal that they just killed 30 Americans? I mean, they knew Americans were there. They did unbelievable preparation and surveillance of this. It's incredible what they were able to pull off and coordinate effectively in their evil minds. So I don't have much faith in their secretary of state laying the law down. Number one, keeping Saudi Arabia, possibly getting to say something positive, keeping the UAE and Bahrain in the Abraham Accords and giving the message to Qatar to stop harboring, stop harboring Hamas. The foreign minister of Iran in Doha over the weekend met at a celebratory dinner in Qatar. Why is this okay? Why is this acceptable? Because we have our military base in Qatar. I understand we put a lot of money into it. That also gives us a lot of leverage because of it. It's going to be some tough fighting. I get it. But Iran's involvement needs to be drilled down on quickly. We have to understand, these enemies have existed. They're just showing themselves now. Currently, we have seen some shelling and some probes from Hezbollah in the north. So that has forced a lot of troops to go north and leave the south, which makes sense to me because I don't know how many troops you need in Gaza. I mean, you have 25 miles long. They got about 5,000 men. The most of them in tunnels. It's going to be challenging. I just don't know if you need hundreds of thousands. And Hezbollah has always been an enemy and a danger. Hamas, an enemy and a danger. So if they're going to fight, now's the time when Israel, if ever, has the world sentiment behind them, saying they got to take care of business. Frank McKenzie, uh, the general who was all involved in the Afghanistan evacuation, was on over the weekend. There was such a disaster, by the way and said he had no choice because he had to listen to President Biden and his timeline to get out. Some of the weapons that we left in Afghanistan are being used by Hamas, insult to injury. Here's what he said about Iran's role, cut nine.
6: I I believe it's likely they did not know the date or time of this particular attack, but Iran, by supporting Hamas with hundreds of millions of dollars down through the years, by providing them with equipment, by providing them with training, and, and by supporting their ideology, is certainly the moral author of this attack, even if they didn't know the exact timing, the exact timing of this
3: particular attack. And now they threaten Israel. They said, you better not go into Gaza. You're going to have a problem with me. we got a huge problem with you. And if you ever, if you ever get nuclear weapons, the whole world will have a problem with you. Israel wants the ability and the American backing to go ahead and take care of business in Iran. And should things get out of control, we got three aircraft carrier groups uh, consistent with not only the aircraft carriers, but the destroyers and supporting ships sitting there now in the Gulf. Iran does not like direct confrontation. They like to do things cowardly. They like to do things through terror and through proxies. So they have plausible deniability in many cases. So here's what Lindsey Graham said. Cut 13.
5: I am poised to use military force to destroy the source of funding for Hamas and Hezbollah. The idea that Iran read about this operation in the paper or on television is laughable. 93% of Hezbollah and Hamas's money comes from Iran. They're the source of the problem. They're the great evil. So if Hezbollah escalates against Israel, it will be because Iran told them to. Then, Iran, you're in the crosshairs of the United States and Israel.
3: Right. Uh, Listen, Senator Graham, I wish you had more power. I do think your sentiment's correct. Nobody wants war, but if you're willing to fight a war, it usually avoids a war. And strength does it all. Now, I was on with General Spaulding this morning, and we're going over maps, and he says that this is all coordinated. He believes Hamas attacks Israel to get us strung out. He believes that Russia attacks Ukraine to string us out. And now he believes that China will either orchestrate a move in Korea or go take Taiwan because our resources are so spread out. And there is no number two right behind us. It's a possibility, isn't it? You can't rule it out. My problem with this whole White House is, not that I disagree, they seem ill-equipped to handle anything. Not the economy, not the border, not world affairs. But for some reason, no one's giving that message to President Biden, who in sitting down with 60 Minutes at this softest interview I've ever seen 60 Minutes do, he says this, uh, he says this about why he wants to run again. And why he wants to run again is totally opposite of why he should be running. He thinks he can run on the economy. Nobody else thinks that. He thinks that. He also thinks that he's got to run again because they got some. They have a lot of important things that they got to get done. They have a lot of important things they got to get done. They want to continue on re- rejiggering middle the Middle East. Really? Here's what he said. Cut for.
7: Given these two wars and the dysfunction in Congress, are you sure that you want to run again? Yes, because I'm sure. Look. And I ran, I said, the world's at an inflection point. The world's changing, but we have an opportunity to make it. So imagine if we were able to succeed in getting the Middle East put in place where we
3: have normalization of relations. I think we can do that. It was being done, and you wouldn't allow anyone in your White House to use the term Abraham Accords. You wanted to declare a pariah nation of Saudi Arabia with all their problems, light years better and better situated for us as an ally than Iran. You have to make a choice. You quickly said the Houthi rebels are no longer terrorists. Allow the kissing up to Iran, hoping they'll let you back into the bad nuclear deal. They didn't care. But that also undermined Saudi Arabia because the Houthi rebels in Yemen were lobbing rockets into Saudi Arabia. You stopped the recognition of Israel from happening with the most important nation for that to happen with. And that was Saudi Arabia. It began to get back on track. Before this quickly happened, you saw what happened with Afghanistan, your slow reaction with Ukraine, asking for a ride out for the leader, saying he'd be wiped out in three days, and then suddenly realizing how much courage he had and how strong the Ukrainian people were, and then you slowly armored them. You're the last person we want to lead, and I can't believe you were the last person to actually understand that, but— that's what you have to run against Republicans. That's why, in the Real Clear Average, Trump, despite all the headwinds, is up by one, and Nikki Haley is up by the average of four. You listen to Brian Kilmeade show. I'll take some calls next one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine, and then Andy McCarthy will outside the will outline the legal case that Israel has to go all in, all in, against Hamas. Brian Kilmeade show
2: giving you everything you need to know you're with brian kilmeade
3: fox news radio on demand on
2: the fox news app download the app and just click listen when you swipe left you can listen to your favorite fox news talk shows live swipe right for the latest fox news radio newscasts on demand fox news radio on the fox news app download it today Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
1: There are 2.3 million people living in Gaza. Collective punishment is something we support? It's not
4: collective punishment. Hamas is the one that is creating this predicament. Hamas is the one who always uses civilian targets to conduct operations. And we dealt with this some in Iraq where al-Qaeda in Iraq would commandeer mosques. So under normal circumstances, of course, you don't target a religious institution. But if you have terrorist groups that are converting that in to a base of operations, then you absolutely treat that as military targets. But that's Because Hamas is making those decisions to convert that infrastructure into the use uh, for terrorist purposes.
3: So Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation just teased off on Governor DeSantis if he's some lunatic. Because he said, we do not want to take any Palestinian refugees. He said, why not? He said, well, they're not all terrorists. Because, yeah, they might not be terrorists, but they're anti-Semitic. That should be something in the Arab world. We're not going to pick them up and move them in. We have enough issues over here with immigration. I 100% agree. But she has a huge problem with that. In which he goes and she t- doesn't even call out Jake Sullivan, said two weeks before the October 7th attack that the Middle East, and I'll just paraphrase, has never been so peaceful. So little has to, so little comes to his desk from the Middle East compared to his predecessors. Man, did you miss that, right? Do you think that would have come up? But no, Governor DeSantis is coming up, and the look of disdain that she has in her face for his other existence is noteworthy. He's never going to get a fair shake. I don't, I'm sure he doesn't really expect it. I did look at it on ABC where Rehan Salam, uh, who is, uh, writes for Atlantic magazine, really saw this clearly like I see this. Hamas goes in and kills innocent people, has his plan to make sure the kindergartens, daycares and senior citizens either killed or captured and make sure they're tortured. Young women raped. That's the goal. It's in written. It's written writing in a 14-page manual. It's all come to the surface. And in case you think they're embarrassed or denying it, they taped it. They've had GoPros and other tapings of wiping out 260 people at an outdoor concert. And I'm just amazed how everybody's so worried about what happens in Gaza, but they don't seem nearly as concerned what happened at the Gaza Strip over the border when these people broke through and got raided. So here's what he just said uh, yesterday. Cut 19.
10: This is not just about Hamas. What Hamas did was egregious, was an outrage against any decent human being. But Iran has been deeply involved, not just with Hamas, with Hezbollah, with Palestine Islamic Jihad. They have been waging a war, not just on Israel, but on a number of other allies of the United States. They've demonstrated zero compunction about targeting Americans as well. So this is not new. They have not been a spectator. And I believe that the Biden administration needs to own up to some grave strategic and moral errors they've made in trying to de-escalate.
3: Yes, and I think the worst is yet to come. Word is, there's some word that, that we are pressuring, the U.S. is pressuring Israel to hold off on the invasion, to let more civilians get out. But you know who else gets out? The terrorists. We're going to plot and plan another day and be treated like heroes when the red carpet comes out with a lot of these evil regimes or the Muslim Brotherhood affiliates around the world, around the globe. So that's the worry. And could you please let Israel do their thing? I know the president says the right things publicly, but his track record is miserable. Meanwhile, Rehan Salam goes on. Cut 20.
10: It's really important for people to understand the wider context. I want your viewers to understand that in January 2021, Iran was exporting something along the lines of 700,000 barrels of oil per day. Mm -hmm. Now that number is about 3x that amount. That translates into tens of billions of dollars in incremental revenue, where Iran was previously in a box under a a campaign of maximum pressure. Now Iran has the resources not just to deal with domestic economic challenges, not just to rebuild its nuclear program, which it has done emphatically, but also to finance its various terrorist proxies.
3: So we'll talk about this. I also on. to about what's going on in the House. Jim Jordan's got the most votes, but is it enough votes? I want to discuss that, too. But when we come back, the legal case that Israel has to go forward hard, quickly, and get the terrorists out of Gaza and blow up those tunnels once and for all. Because this attack can't happen again. Not in five years, ten years, ever again. This is their time to make sure Hezbollah is eradicated, too. Let's hope they can do both. We have to be willing to help, I believe.
2: Is three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
8: In this moment, we don't have um, anything that uh, shows us that Iran was directly involved in this attack and in planning it or in carrying out.
3: It's not like the Iranians were ever going to be able to get all six billion or even a billion at a time. Uh, the idea would be it would be allocated in very small chunks. So the idea that even if they had started to draw in that fund, that it would be able to fund Hamas is just not true.
0: We don't have specific information. That ties Iran to this
3: attack. We have not seen any evidence, specific evidence, that Iran was directly involved with these specific sets of attacks. You recognize those voices and the names: Admiral Kirby, the last, and of course Jake Sullivan in there, uh, and the president. So why why are they so vested in making sure Iran? Is not complicit in these attacks when we know they financed it all, and there's been two or three separate reports that they were part of the plotting and planning. With me right now is Andy McCarthy. He has figured it out. He's a best selling author, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, Andy, why do you think this administration is so vested in not putting Iran involved with this?
0: Because if they acknowledged it, they'd have to do something about it, and their dream of a new Iran nuclear. Deal and their whole vision of the Middle East, where there's uh, some kind of a functioning relationship between the United States and Iran as a balance of power in the region against the Sunni governments would all go poof. So they they are, I, I think this is insane, Brian, but they are vested in this vision of the Middle East in which Iran is a major player. Uh, so that's like the big vision thing, and this and the you know more immediate thing is, if you acknowledge that Iran was a part of this, this was such an atrocious war crime, something would have to be done to Iran, and they're not willing to do that.
3: Also, you can't get the you you write that you can't get that money back if you wanted to. It's Doha's to right. freeze or unfreeze. We know they're tight with Iran. They just had the foreign minister over for dinner Saturday with the Hamas leader.
0: Right, uh, Qatar um, is an interesting country. I, I, you know, looking at it closely, I really think Qatar is the Muslim Brotherhood. I think that the, you know, it, it, as the govern as the Muslim Brotherhood exists as a as a kind of a uh, an international movement, it was once headquartered in Egypt. I think it's now headquartered in Qatar, and one of its big projects, Brian, over the last decade plus. Has been to kind of bridge uh, the divide between, uh, you know, the Sunni uh, Islamic governments and Iran, and it's done a lot to allow. It's it's actually done a lot to get the pretty get the Sunni governments in the region pretty steamed at it um, over uh, the, over its close alliance with Iran to the point that um, Saudi Arabia. Kuwait, the United Arab yeah. Emirates, I think, and in, in Bahrain, they broke off diplomatic ties with Qatar in 2017 over its ties to Iran. They did reestablish ties, but Qatar very recently, when Iranian troops were captured, Iranian operatives were captured in Syria, it was Qatar that ponied up $57 million to get them back for Iran. Um, so they have a very close alliance, and the thought that the Qatar government is going to side with us over its Sharia supremacist ally, Iran, is just – I think that's like you're, – you it's delusional.
3: Right. We have a big military base there, and I think we think that's leverage. On top of that, you, you point out something about the Iranian deal. It makes no sense. We don't really know anything about the Americans we got out. They threw in another relative that lived there that just wanted to leave. And then is it the agents that we swapped them for were legitimate criminals, spies? You know, there were spies. And were they forced to leave our country? No, because two of them
0: were um, green card holders, and one of them was a dual citizen of Iran and the United States. And the Iran- So they are our people, not Iran's people, and as a result, um, for some reason, what we did was instead of a prisoner swap, which is what they sold us as, like, you know, we get our five back and they get their five back, they insisted that we released those three American Iranian operatives so that they could go back to work in Iran. Um, you know, no, no, in Iran
3: these, or in the U.S.?
0: There, I'm sorry, they are still in the United States because they can't be made. To leave, they're you know they're either citizens or lawful permanent resident.
2: I
3: did aliens. not know this. This is a, after reading yeah. your story, it's the first time I knew this.
0: Yeah, well, because the way the administration told this to people was that it was just a common prisoner swap. And look, nobody likes prisoner swaps in the sense that you know, in order to get our people back, we usually overpay, which means you know, like look at the Brittany Griner situation, right? We got her back, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, but at the same time, we gave up a terrible Russian operative who is, you know, who go, gets right back into the business of doing uh, anti-American activity, and we have to live with that. Here, you know, when they sold this to people, they said, you know, it's just a prisoner swap, and we all said, well, you know, okay, we have to give up five to get back five. Um, People were more upset about the money, I think understandably so, the $6 billion and the idea that we were doing the swap. But when you look closely at the swap, it wasn't really a swap because what they did was demand that we release – we had to release five people. Only two of them went back to Iran. Three of them we had to release back into the United States even though they had been convicted of being Iranian clandestine operatives. So I think the Biden administration knew people would be upset if anyone ever focused on this, which people really didn't seem to do. Uh, and I, I, I take I blame myself for this, too. I didn't look at it this hard until uh, all this other stuff recently happened. Um, but what what the Biden administration said about this, because I think they knew people would get upset, was don't worry because we can rescind what we did in order to release them, and what they didn't want to tell people was Biden had actually pardoned these people in order to release them at the Iranians' insistence. So they said, but don't worry, if they do anything, if they misbehave, we'll rescind the pardons. And as a matter of constitutional law, you can't rescind a pardon. If you could rescind a pardon, don't you think Biden would have rescinded the pardons that Trump issued at the end of his term? I mean, you can't rescind a pardon. Um, so just it's just another lie. It's another con job that they're wow. you know, playing on the public because they're trying to accommodate Iran. It's
3: insane, and, and they can't get away with that, but it looks like they, they're trying to. So let's talk about the, what you write about, and this is a big thing. Why is there such a delay in the invasion? Some say that we've been pushing Israel to take it easy, give, uh, the, give the Palestinians time to get south, and give, uh, give us some time to get Egypt to open up the gate. Look what Andrea Mitchell says on Meet the Price, cut 16.
1: They are telling Israel, and he's going to be heading back to Israel, to stress the restraint. They are already losing the public relations, the support of Europe. So that is a big concern. But what you also heard today, importantly, Lindsey Graham got approval to go in with that delegation. The Saudi deal is not dead. Mm. This comes right after Secretary Blinken was meeting with the Saudi leader overnight. So they still want that. And, uh, you know, what the, they're not saying privately, is that the Sunni Arabs are not supporting Hamas. They would be very happy to eliminate Hamas.
3: But what was amazing is they're already talking about proportionality and to take it easy and stress restraint. Really? You have 1,200 people massacred, 199 people taken hostage, and it's up to Israel to show restraint? you have a problem with that?
0: Well, first of all, they're they're distorting the... Law of war concept of proportionality, which does not mean that you that your response has to be measured against what the people who have aggressively attacked you have done. You know, imagine Brian, I'm in a fight with uh, you know Mike Tyson, and I hit him with a jab, and he hits me with a roundhouse rough, right, right, and I say, no, 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 disproportionate, that's wrong, you can't do that. That that's ridiculous. That's not the way that's not what proportionality means. What proportionality means in the law of war is that a military force is supposed to only attack military, legitimate military objectives. It doesn't mean that you can't have civilian casualties or what they call collateral damage, you know, either casualties or, or uh damage to civilian infrastructure. What it means is you have to weigh the military objective against uh, what you're going to do in the way of collateral damage. But the fact that you're going to have collateral damage doesn't mean that you don't do the military objective. So to be more concrete about it, if Hamas is shooting missiles from the living room in an apartment in a residential building, the law of proportionality, the principle of proportionality doesn't mean that Israel can't take out that building. What it means is it should only take out that building if it's a legitimate military objective, which obviously it would be if they're shooting missiles. Mm-hmm. So that's what proportionality means. It doesn't mean that you have to limit your response to what the other side has done, which would be a, an absurd concept. Imagine if the, Israelis, if, if the Israelis came out and said, OK, well, we'll only rape this many Palestinian yeah, women. Yeah, We'll only kill this many Palestinians. That would be lunatic we don't fight that way so the whole the whole idea of what they're saying about proportionality is is moronic but you know they've been doing this since the post 9/11 era and they've been pretty successful at convincing people that proportionality means something that it doesn't mean
3: Right. Uh, They say go by the rules of war and the best you can. But if Hamas is going to use these people as human shields, prevent them from leaving or going south or leaving their building, even though it's going to be targeted, that's not Israel's problem. It's their problem. Yeah, right. And it's not a
0: violation of the laws of war. I mean, it's just not if it's a legitimate military target. It's terrible. Uh, You know, I don't mean to be callous about this, but that's what war is. It's terrible that there's going to be civilian Casualties. It's terrible that Israel has already leveled a lot of this place from by by the air, but that's what happens in a war, which is why we try to prevent war. But the fact that there's going to be civilian casualties doesn't mean that you can't attack something.
3: Understood, man. uh, We covered a lot of ground. Andy, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, We know that. Yeah, we know they're going to get back to the court cases soon. Uh, We know that Michael Cohen is not coming in today in that civil case. We also know the president suing Christopher Steele for defamation or whatever they do in the U.K., so that's interesting. But we'll we'll tap into that a little bit later uh, when this war slows down. Thanks, Andy. 1-866-408-7669. When I come back, I'll take your calls. Also, I'm seeing a lot of your emails coming in uh, off the Sunday show, which is 9 to 11. Uh, we'll go over that. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. And
0: 55 Republicans, um, 55 Republicans said they would not vote for Jim Jordan on, on the floor. Even after he won a majority, a majority not as big as the majority. I mean, you remember he came in second to Scalise who had to drop out. I mean, where are you...
3: So that was Jonathan Carl. That was pretty much his question, but I wanted to pull it. Uh, because it just shows where we're at right now. And no one can figure it out. In the beginning, I think Democrats and a lot of left-leaning media were kind of uh, happy. They said, wow, the Republicans are falling apart. But now it's getting crazy. you imagine just a branch of government just stopped working? Branch of government just not working. They're not doing appropriations bills. I thought you had to have it done by November, right? They're not doing the investigation. I thought they had to impeach uh, the president because we're going to get to the bottom of what all the accounts are involved with. I don't hear anything going on there. Do you? There was a documents uh, interview with Robert Hur. There's a huge story there that the president of the United States has, has found his stories does not add up along with his staffers, that he was actually maneuvering for certain types of intelligence over the course of years. That was arguably as big, if not bigger than Trump's situation. After all, he's moving boxes around to his garage. You no, know, he's moving boxes around uh, to the Penn Center, moving boxes around to his lawyers. Doesn't matter. So now I, I talked to two congressmen on Sunday, and their stories lined up. It looks like Jordan's got about 200 votes. But if it doesn't go through, they're talking about maybe just make, letting McHenry have it temporarily. But Democrats have to vote on that. Let him hold on to the speakership, and and just uh, keep the body functioning because they need aid for Taiwan. They need aid for Ukraine. They need aid an emergency aid package for Israel. There's other things they want to vote on. They also want to do this thing where they want to prevent all these refugees from coming here from Gaza, don't you? Here's Akeem Jeffries. This is what he wants, Cut 28.
4: We want to ensure that votes are taken on bills that have substantial Democratic support and substantial Republican support so that the extremists aren't able to dictate the agenda. The current rules of the House have facilitated a handful of Republicans being able to determine what gets voted on in the House of Representatives. And that undermines the interests of the American people. We can change the rules to facilitate bipartisanship. And that should be the starting point of our conversation.
3: Well, here's the thing. I don't blame Hakeem Jeffries for trying to get some leverage. But there's a there's one party with the majority in the Senate. And a different party in the House. He wants to pretend as if they're all equal. It's not equal. And I can't see Republicans giving that up. But some are getting so frustrated with those eight idiots that blew this whole thing up. And then still won't agree between Scalise, Jordan, or anybody else. So the House Speakership has at least 10 to 20 Republicans who oppose the nomination of Jim Jordan. The question is, will they budge at all out of sheer embarrassment and necessity if Jordan fails? And I imagine he's going to go at it almost as much as, um, as Ken McCarthy, who I interviewed today. We might want to pull some of that and said that I'm still going to work to get Jim Jordan elected. If I was Ken McCarthy, I'd be tempted to go back to Bakersfield and just hang out. He said, no, I got 70 percent of these candidates. I campaigned for them, got them elected, recruited most of them. It means too much for him to get the majority. He's not going to give up. I give him great credit on that. Other candidates, Tom Cole, Elise Stefanik, Tom Emmer. Congressman Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, I am hear a lot about him, of Texas, Jody Errington. So that's where you stand. Dan Crenshaw says, well, it's not good. There's no positive message here. I don't want to give everybody the impression that it's a giant crisis either. I know it's sometimes it feels that way. It's a democracy. Democracy is always messy. I think the real problem is that we've allowed a different process of democracy to take hold within our conference, which is the majority does not rule. So would you give take Democrats, Patrick McHenry, power to make critical legislation decisions and be the speaker and preside over it and empower him to sign this stuff into legislation or get it over to the Senate? Uh, also, four moderate Democrats led by Josh Gottheimer, co-chair of the bi- bipartisan uh, problem solvers, unit sent a letter to McHenry on Friday proposing a vote to expand his authority. So that could be it. We will see. Uh, I don't see anything good of this except for one thing. People realize that Matt Gates is only out for Matt Gates. Matt Rosendale only out for Matt Rosendale. If you come in, and I don't know, Congressman Good, but does he vote for anybody, for anything, ever? I mean, does anyone ever been on a team sport before? You know, might not agree on the cap team. might not agree on the lineup. You might not agree with the coach. But you're on that team, so play ball. Can you imagine if the squad was able to dictate to Nancy Pelosi? In the end, they got in line. I don't know why, but they did get in line. They always get in line, but they don't agree. Brian Kelly Show.
2: From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome
3: to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I come to you from Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world, where embarrassingly, I saw so many protests in Times Square and around, marching through the streets on Broadway and 7th Avenue, through these new plazas that they built, because they don't want any cars coming down. So you have these mammoth protests, and these people are just so clueless, saying things to the effect of, we know those that massacre didn't happen, let alone... The Israelis had it coming to them. Yes. Children needed to be beheaded. Exactly. Embarrassed. New York City really embarrassed itself. But the mayor pushed back. And for that, I salute him. Michael Goodwin coming up from the New York Post shortly. Uh, and then we have other great guests coming up this hour. Uh, we'll give you a perspective on everything. Because there's a lot going on over in Israel. So let's get to the big three.
2: Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The current rules of the House
4: have facilitated a handful of Republicans being able to determine what gets voted on in the House of Representatives, and that undermines the interests of the American people.
3: Yes, that is Hakeem Jeffries trying to solve, to his advantage, the speaker problem. And it is embarrassing. It is a house of chaos. Kevin McCarthy joined me on Fox & Friends. I'll bring back some of that interview. They ousted him for absolutely no reason, and they had no plan. A joke. Number two.
5: We're now second in Iowa, second in New Hampshire, second in South Carolina. We're going to keep on moving. Look, Americans get the fact that they need a new generational conservative leader because they don't want a President Kamala Harris.
3: Uh, That's what she's done effectively and make everybody know that she does not think Joe Biden can make it through his second term. That is Nikki Haley. The Republicans begin their Middle Eastern stance to let everybody know how they would handle this latest crisis. Also, we bring you the latest polls, positions, as well as fundraising numbers.
7: Number one. Is Iran behind the Gaza war? I don't want to get into classified information, but to be very blunt with you, there is no clear evidence of that.
3: You want to be blunt because you want to keep relations going with Iran, which is criminal. The invasion could begin any moment. There we are. There are calls to pull back before Israel even goes into Gaza. We bring you all the aspects of the war in Israel. And I cannot wait to get Michael Goodwin's uh, take on this. Michael joins us now. Michael, you know, with everything that you've seen, with all the crises that we had, including the 9-11 attacks here in New York City, how disturbed are you by the series of events since October, October 7th and beyond?
6: Well, good morning, Brian. Look, I I, I think we're entering a, n- a new phase of world history, and uh, I, I think a lot of the trends that we've seen and that you and I have discussed, I mean, the emergence of China, the brazen threats against the West, against Taiwan, the war in Ukraine, the invasion, trying to gobble up, trying uh, – Putin trying to recreate parts of the Soviet Union. Uh, iran, with its nuclear weapons push with its terrorism around the region, uh, I think these things are all coming to fruition, and it it looks to me like the world the 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 axis of evil the russia the china the iran the north korea they 're making a move. And it's not necessarily all coordinated, but I think it all stems from the same thing. They're feeling emboldened, and they look at America and feel that America is in decline, which most Americans agree with, and they fear that or, or they feel that America is weak. And I think most Americans would probably agree with that, that we have put weakness uh, front and center to the world. And so Israel, of course, being a vulnerable outpost of the West, if you want to see it in large, uh, you know, geostrategic terms, um, and I think Israel looks very vulnerable right now. I think the question of whether Hezbollah is going to open the second front, whether now is the time when Iran goes for the kill. Um, and I think that's clearly what uh, the Hamas attack signaled, that Israel looked weak. Israel was not ready. And I think when you, when you display weakness, as Israel did by, by not seeing this uh, plot, Uh, by not catching it and detecting it and being able to stop it, it emboldens your enemies. And so I think we're living in a very precarious time, Brian. It's not hard to imagine Mm -hmm. that we're in this early innings of new developments that really shake to the core everything we believe about our our own country's strength and power and its place in the world.
3: A couple of things. Just to back up, the AP did a poll. 78% of our country say our nation is off course. And I think that's a correct statement, off course. Easy to put back. Because we just have the, we have the wrong leadership making terrible choices. Who would ever think it's a good, new, good news to double our deficit by spending money we don't have on green projects that don't work? Who would ever think it's a good, new, good idea to open our borders and blame Congress when you know you did it yourself? Who would ever think it's a good idea to make the serving in the military so, un, so unpalatable? Even the families who traditionally have served are telling their next generation not to be in it. To me, and we, yet we still are growing, yet we still, have the biggest, uh, we still have the biggest armed forces in the world. We still have the most talent. We still have the best track record. So I do think with the right leadership, it's easy to, it's easy to course correct and start re- good, redirecting our energy to use our own resources and start building some pride in our armed forces to prevent the next conflict. I do say this. I had General Spaulding on today, and he believes this is all coordinated. Hamas hitting the Ukraine invasion and he believes that China's next move is to take Taiwan or tell North Korea to start blitzing South Korea because they want us strung out. Do you think with they're that coordinated? Well, I don't I actually
6: don't believe it's coordinated, but I think it is connected in the sense that they see each of, each of these rogue nation sees uh, the the path forward and that America is slow slow to react Um, even I mean I have to say Brian although Joe Biden gave that first that that second speech he made on on Israel it was it was a good speech except he left out Iran and the anti-semitism at home because, probably, because he doesn't want to uh, stir the Iran nest. He doesn't want to confront what what a failure his policy is. And the anti-Semitism is coming largely from the left, his own party, and so he's been slow to react to that. But then, in subsequent days, he has said different things. For example... The idea that it would be a mistake for Israel to occupy Gaza or that it has to be careful, not about civilians. All that's fine, except what are you really saying? What are you supporting? What's your policy? How far do you believe Israel can and should go? Because if Israel is successful in decapitating Hamas, then what? Does Israel just pull back again out of Gaza? Well, what happens in Gaza? I mean, there will be a new Hamas. There will be a new takeover. So this is the kind of things that are very complicated. And Joe Biden,
3: he looks like he's half asleep all the time. I mean, I'm watching him on Sunday. Do you know what Scott Pelley said leading up to that interview? The president had a busy day, and they told us when he gets tired, he goes back to his stuttering. Excuse me? You're making excuses for the president before their interview where you gave him a series of layups? What would you say to Iran if they told you uh, that they were going to attack Israel? Don't. Wow. Let's send that clip out and make the president look tough. Why don't you just add kettle drums and make him sound like he's uh, the, the, the next incarnation of FDR? Well, me, it's funny you
6: mentioned that because I had the same reaction, or, or similar, I should say, in the sense that <clears throat> Scott Pelley seemed to be asking him just yes or no questions. They were, do you believe it's wrong for blah, blah, blah? Yes. Do you believe it's right for blah, 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 blah? No. I mean, what, what the kind hell? of interview was that? It you're was not, crazy. You're, not, you're supposed to bring out his thinking, not just sort of bake him a cake and ask him if he likes it or not.
3: And what about this? Uh, I want you to hear this clip, and and I'm not going to lead the witness. I want you to hear this. Cut, Cut four.
7: Given these two wars and the dysfunction in Congress, are you sure that you want to run again? Yes, because I'm sure... Look, when I ran, I said, the world's at an inflection point. The world's changing, but we have an opportunity to make it. So imagine if... We were able to succeed in getting the Middle East put in place where we have normalization
3: of relations. I think we can do that. So I just want you to let that ruminate for a second. Can you bring me through the question and the answer?
6: Well, I, I mean, it's, it's sort of he, he cannot he cannot finish a complete sentence. So he switches midstream and then he always reflects back to the past. Right when I decided to run, it was because I mean, in other words, it's 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 a hodgepodge, and there's never a complete thought in it. There's never a real answer. He's just he's not functioning like an a, 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 an adult who has had all these experiences and draws on them. He cannot communicate the basic things, and I think it's very disheartening for America. I mean, where are we going? This guy's, would you let him fly a plane? Would you, would, we're on this great plane of America. It, can, can he really be the
3: pilot? So, I mean, so it, it, the it, question was, do you, is, is the world worthy of you serving another four years? How about this, Mr. President, you're 80 years old, or 82. You'll be 86 by the end. With these crises and, uh, and the need for maybe 20-hour workdays... You couldn't handle a three-hour workday. You needed a precursor to say you might start stuttering again. I mean, not to bring up age with that question, number one. Number two is he's the one who screwed up what was coming in to a series of alliances called the Abraham Accords. He's the one who made Saudi Arabia a pariah nation, stopping the Abraham Accords. He's the one who took the Houthi rebels off the terror list who are lobbing rockets into Saudi Arabia and backing up Iran to get them back into this deal, screwing up the Abraham Accords. It was only after two and a half years and a reapproachment and a realignment because they had no choice that they went back to Saudi Arabia, but that they were considering doing that. Do you know you could not mention the Abraham Accords in the White House? And now this guy thinks he's going to be the author of a realignment of the Middle East when it was handed to him?
6: Well, you're right that the White House wouldn't even use the words Abraham Accords. Um, and neither would the State Department. Look, uh, Brian, I think the if there's one key to all of this failure, it is the Democrats, starting with Obama and then Biden, treatment of Iran. They have enriched Iran. They have effectively dismantled the sanctions, and Iran is now a richer country. But all of that money or most of that money, whether it's uh, lifting of sanctions or unfreezing cash, all of that money has gone not to help the people of Iran, i uh, it's gone to to fund Hezbollah to fund Hamas of course I mean, to fund the Houthis uh, that were uh, attacking Saudi Arabia. That is what Iran is. You know, Henry Kissinger said many years ago, Iran has to decide if it's a country or a cause. And I think we can safely say Iran is still a cause. It is still a revolutionary cause throughout the region and throughout the world. But Joe Biden doesn't even see it that way. He doesn't see what's happening. He keeps acting as if, as did Obama, oh, we can sweet-talk them. We can just bring them into the fold and they'll see the advantages of being part of the the international uh, rules-based system. They talk as though that there is some magic to this. These people only understand force. They are about killing and destroying. You cannot sweet talk them, as frankly, Israel learned with Hamas. So what I'm worried about, Michael,
3: I'm worried about that delay over the weekend wasn't weather related. I'm worried that they were already trying to tie the hands of Israel. Are you?
6: Uh, uh, You mean the delay in the delay in the fight
3: and the invasion? I, I fear that we're already trying to tie their hands because of the humanitarian uh, casualties that or the, the civilian casualties that could, that could take place.
6: I have a somewhat different view. I think, I think you're right. Biden is trying to tie Israel's hands and limit what they can do. <clears throat> but I do think that this, uh, Israel needs to be very careful, of, of course, uh, in terms of civilian casualties. But it's, it's sort of what happens next. Uh, if you go in there um, heavy, you obviously you may or may not get the hostages. Uh, you will certainly lose some of your own soldiers. It will be a very destructive act. But even if you succeed, then what? What do you do? And I think that is a problem. I'm not sure Israel has the answer to that because it pulled out of Gaza in 20, 2005, 2006, and wanted nothing to do with it, would love to have a peaceful relationship with Gaza. But the problem is. Gaza became the home of Hamas. Hamas runs Gaza. Everything about Gaza is controlled by Hamas. That's one of the reasons why I think Israel did not have good intelligence. I think it has no human intelligence in Gaza anymore. Uh, I think they've all been killed. I think anyone who showed any sympathy to Israel, any kind of affiliation, was killed. So I I think... If Israel is going to take over Gaza, it's going to inherit a two million population and it's going to have to provide services while protecting against the emergence of a new Hamas. So I think it's a very tricky situation, you know, even if Israel succeeds, then what?
3: So, yeah, um, I think that they killed about five or six uh, commanders already, so they had somewhat intelligence. Right. I just, here's an example of, of why I can't wait for the Biden administration to be voted right out. They have just agreed to ease sanctions on Venezuela in exchange for freer elections on their oil industry, the dirtiest oil in the world. They're going to be able to sell it freely and maybe starting, uh, starting to bulk up their economy and put them more in power as, as long as they promise more free elections. So, yeah, again, making, making friends with our enemies and thinking they're going to win them over. Why? Because he's not pumping oil, but he wants to buy it from them. And Amazing. how many
6: Venezuelans have come across our southern border? I mean, more, a million? 800,000? Yep. And they
3: get to stay now.
6: Yeah. I mean, none of this makes sense, right? These two things are at odds with each other. And yet that's the policy. It, it, it's sort of ad hoc. I mean, uh, Jake Sullivan is terrible. I mean, he's just wrong about everything. <laughs> he talks about all oh, the Mideast has never been so calm. Well, well the
3: only thing, uh, remember, we should know what to expect. He was working against the Trump administration pushing that old Russia narrative. Yeah. Yes. Michael Goodman and, and will have to end it National there.
2: security Advisor.
3: Right. Thanks so I mean, much. Back with your calls in just a moment.
2: Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. He'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
3: Hey, we are back. Let's quickly go to Patty in Florida. Hey, Patty.
7: Hey, Brian. Nice to talk
3: to you. Same here. You want to talk about what's going on in Israel?
7: I do. Um, And it segues back to your um, guest, Andy. Andy. Um, talking about proportionality Mm -hmm. and I hear a lot of people talking about the numbers um, and comparing them to 9-11 if you ask me there was only like how many six um, crime scenes and if you do proportionality how many crime scenes were there in Israel? Yeah Patty thanks so
3: much in fact they did it Uh, yes General Petraeus He said it would be like if we lost 40,000 people on 9-11. That's the proportionality. We went back hard. No one stopped us.
2: Information you want Truth you demand This is the Brian Kilmeade Show Why are you here today?
7: Uh, Free
1: Palestine I stand with the Palestinian people unequivocally
8: I support decolonization and liberation of Palestinian people And the end of a mass genocide in the Gaza Strip
1: talking about the
7: genocide of the kids being beheaded?
8: That's false, that is actually false
7: When you see the kids that have been beheaded And the women that are raped How do you feel about that? (sighs)
10: Ugh I don't know where to start from that.
8: Israel is notorious for creating propaganda that sides their one sided massacre against Palestinians.
1: That was already proven um, that didn't really happen. That was, didn't happen. It was not verified.
10: Women did not get raped.
11: No. I have I've not seen any proof of that. If it did happen it I haven't seen it.
10: Like they get attacked for no reason.
7: The children got attacked for no reason? The kids that were beheaded? Beheaded? Yeah, apparently. Like, that's for they were, Jewish kids. Wait, Jewish kids?
1: The U.S. military money that goes there, $4 billion a year, should stop going to Israel to support their
3: war crimes. And that is a little from the campus of Hunter College right here in New York City. You have the same thing with NYU, Columbia. Uh, and it's not different. In Stanford, there were similar things. You saw things in almost every major city for the Palestinians. On Long Island, in Nassau County, went heavily for Trump. You saw hundreds show up on the, the the courthouse steps in support of the Palestinians. This is one week after the worst massacre since the Holocaust on the israelis I mean hard to make sense of this i i'm I'm going to be honest i don't I can't make sense of it. Greg Lukanoff will hopefully can. He's the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, author of The Canceling of the American Mind, Cancel Culture, and How It Undermines Trust and Threatens Us All. Greg, welcome.
11: Uh, Thanks so much for having me.
3: So free speech. They're allowed to say what they have to say. You don't have any problem with that. The fact that they think that way is what disturbs me. Yeah, well, and
11: that's partially the product of cancel culture itself because basically I've been, I've been defending free speech on campus for 22 years, um, and it's gotten so much worse uh, since 2014. And you see that kind of certainty, this kind of like dogmatic way of thinking about the whole conflict, and that's partially because anybody who says anything otherwise, particularly at elite colleges,
3: they get canceled. But why would it be in America's interest to have college teachers teach uh, – Anti, Anti-Israeli anti points of view. Uh, Anti-American points of view.
11: I mean, if this results in a lot of major employers not hiring from elite colleges that teach this kind of stuff, I'd consider that a win. And um, in, in uh, so do
3: I. In our, in
11: our book, Canceling the American Mind, I think there needs to be massive reform in higher ed. And one of the things that we have to do, and I think this is a wake-up call here, we have to get – forgive this expression, but we got to get less of our ruling class to be from a handful of, of colleges that are just so group-thinking that you can actually think you know, m- murder is fine.
3: So here, here, obviously, I think with the Palestinian cause, every time there's a vote, they vote in Hamas. So, and if there's a poll done, Hamas rate's really high. So they say, well, the Palestinians are on the Hamas are in are Hamas. Well, I don't know. They keep voting for them, So they seem to be positive. Uh, I don't know what else to say. And the attack seems obvious. So am I being a hypocrite by saying I, that point of view astounds me? I really don't want to hear it. I'm not, I shouldn't say that you don't have the right to hear it, but am I being a hypocrite saying that should be clamped down on?
11: Uh, I I mean I'm a First Amendment lawyer, so I believe that speech. They you know, have the right to say that. They absolutely have the right to say and that. Not, I have the
3: right not to hire them if I have this job. You
11: you, you do. Um, but one thing we, we talk about in the book is trying not to meet cancel culture with cancel culture. Yes. But I do think that if you you know you have an employee show up and they're that certain of, of their political point of view, particularly if they're coming from elite college, you should actually be trying to figure out. Wait a second, are you going to come here and try to cancel every employee we have that disagrees with you? Because that's been one of the major problems of hiring hiring from elite college. Colleges lately, is that they show up, they act just like elite college students always had. They think they're morally superior, they think they're intellectually superior, and they show up and they want you to to, to fire people on staff who might think, for example, biological sex is real or or, or don't support Hamas.
3: So you have uh, thirty just to finish up Harvard. We have more to talk about. Yeah. They had 30 student unions come together and write yeah. a letter condemning Israel days after the attack. Larry Summers, the former president, said, are you kidding me? Yeah. Other people say, are you this is terrible. Is anyone going to say anything after what, four days? Yeah. That's when the Harvard management, the, 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 the uh, council came out and said, OK, this is how we feel. The Students can speak up, but that they don't speak for the university. Yeah. Your reaction to their reaction.
11: Well, uh, I mean, Larry Summers, it, you know, is on our board um, it, basically saying that. Wait a second. You commented on every other little tiny thing when it fit your politics better, but you won't come out and condemn monstrous attacks that that Harvard refused to to come out to condemn the attacks. I I think he's absolutely right. I think Sam Abrams, who wrote this about Sarah uh, Sarah Lawrence College, is absolutely right. But I do want to say. One of the biggest values of freedom of speech is to know what people really think, not even if, but especially when they think monstrous things. And I want people to take a long, hard look about what they're seeing on campus today.
3: Right. I would love for people to read Hamas's constitution and then say, do you still back them? Yeah, especially if you're gay. Yeah. If you are gay with this liberal, this liberal environment, you know, you're supposed to be yourself. They will throw you off buildings. And if it is illegal to do that. So if you're worried about tolerance. Uh, don't look Tomas, how (laughs) dare you break up your Friday or stop me from getting across town. In support of it. Now let's fast forward over to to Columbia. This Joseph Massad, a Columbia professor, he called Hamas atrocities in Israel a stunning victory. He said the sight of the Palestinian resistance fighters storming Israeli checkpoints, separating Gaza from Israel, um, was astounding. Not only to the Israelis, but especially to the Palestinian Arab peoples um, who came out uh, across the region to march in support of the Palestinians in the battle against their cruel colonizers.
11: Something even worse, by the way, happened at my alma mater, Stanford. Uh, a professor actually had student, Jewish students raise their hands in class. He labeled them all colonizers, told them to gather their things and go get in the corner of, of the room, said that your colonizers – and by the way, colonizers have killed more people than were killed in the Holocaust, which uh, I don't know where you get that math from. And it's funny because since I defend academic freedom and free speech, there were, there were a couple of people being like, will you defend this person? And the answer is, of course not. That's outright discrimination. They can totally fire someone for that.
3: But where, but where does someone get – Stanford's one of the elite institutions in our country? Country To get a, a job as a professor there, you got to be the best. I would think the best of the best. We're, somehow in the job interview yep. process, either people are masking their views or they don't. Oh, no, they're What's not worse? masking them.
11: No, they're not masking them. The, the thing is, like, some of this radical sheet kind of stuff, that, that'll get you hired. I mean, that's one of the reasons why. In Canceling the American Mind, we talk about the growth of the anti-free speech movement on campus starting way back in 1964. Uh, there's very little viewpoint diversity in higher ed. There's literally departments with zero conservatives whatsoever. And now they're adding DEI statements as political litmus tests to make it even more politically homogenous. There, there are people there who want this to be a a, a a place where you can only have a handful of opinions. How did that happen? Over a long period of time, some of it was in, in sort of natural progression, but some of it was very much intentional. I mean, like this anti-free speech movement I'm talking about, like these are the people like uh, Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, who passed speech codes in the 1980s. I've been fighting this for 22 years, and I've been singing to I have and warning people about how bad it's gotten on campus. I've reached the point where I think the best thing that could happen if there was some insanely hard test that maybe one out of a thousand people could pass that we use instead of people people going to Harvard or Stanford.
3: Well, it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing that these hard institutions institutions kid they could might, people might be too scared to send their kids there now.
11: Well and and that wouldn't be the worst outcome I I, I got to tell you. Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it's incredible. Um couple other things. I mean if you look into historically Woodrow Wilson used to brag that when I was at Princeton I got no black and no blow black students in. Isn't it great? He almost ran on that. Yeah. And now you have a situation where People looking to condemn people who happen to be Republican, let alone uh, black, white, or uh, in between. Uh, when you talk about our institutions and you talk about these professors, you even have a number. People say cancel culture doesn't really exist. Yeah. You figured it out. Yeah. You even name the people that have been canceled. Yeah,
11: absolutely. So tell me about this. Oh, my, it's it's crazy. And And here's the thing. The cousins you have, daughters, nieces, nephews who claim cancel culture isn't real, by all means get them this book because it's filled with data explaining that this is not just real, it's historic. And we talk about, you know, so basically like 60, uh, at the time of McCarthyism, about, they could point to about 63 professors who were uh, fired because they were communist. They usually add, add a couple other points of view and they round up to about 100. We're talking about twice that number of professors uh, being canceled since the beginning of cancel culture uh, in 2014, 2017. But it's worse than that. One in six professors say that they have been investigated for their point of view. One third of them um, have been uh, have said that. And and again, these are also already institutions with virtually no viewpoint diversity in in many departments. So in some cases, it's actually in some cases, professors who consider themselves liberal, but they're not sufficiently woke, uh, you know, for the rest of the (laughs) year. Yeah, exactly.
3: So, yeah, I mean, to liberal is Bill Moore. Yeah, And Bill Maher is astounded by what he sees. He goes, I haven't changed at all. Yeah. I'm never going to vote for a Republican. He's like, I'm going to be the same way, but I don't understand what's happening. Because if you're a comedian entertainer, you might think it's cool to be woke for a while. But how is it affecting them now?
11: Yeah, well, and, and this is what we call in the book the perfect rhetorical fortress. This is something that's that's been developed on campus on the left. It is a system of, of Perfect ways to just dismiss people um, and not actually address their argument. And the first thing you do is you claim someone's conservative. Um, It doesn't matter if they are. But believe me, like people dismiss Bill Maher as being right wing, which is ridiculous. And then you can go through all the demographic categories. But it actually turns out that even if you're in the 0.9 percent of like the most uh, disadvantaged person in the entire world, if you have the wrong opinion, you will still be canceled.
3: Wow. Uh, Starbucks, they had the dispute between the corporation and employees. You know, they're now unionizing. Oh, yeah. And now deleted social media posts, a faction calling itself Starbucks Workers United, expressed solidarity with Palestine. And and after a backlash from conservative media outlets, Starbucks issued a statement saying the company's unequivocally condemns the act of terrorism, hate and violence. Workers United words and actions belong to them and them alone. They are quickly doing some some damage control. But it doesn't mean that they change – the workers change their mind.
11: No, and, that, and that's one of the reasons why you want to know – want free speech is you want to know what people, what, what people actually think out there.
3: Do you think this could be giving a tipping point?
11: You know, I have to say that when suddenly St- Stanford, suddenly Harvard, suddenly Northwestern started talking a good game on free speech and political neutrality, I-, I couldn't help but be incredibly cynical and skeptical. I'm like, oh, now's the time after 22 years of fighting this, you've decided now is the time because you're embarrassed with what your students are actually actually saying. If, however, it turns out that they mean it, I'll be pleased, but, I, I, but I'm but i pretty skeptical they actually do.
3: Well, I would know they meant it is if they looked at the 30 student unions that came out and said statements for pro-Palestine, if they quickly said this does – they can speak for themselves, but we speak for the university, I would have said, OK, they mean it. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe get to the heart and find out, well, you're just worried about damage. But it took the outrage yes. of one of their own to come out and say, what yeah. the hell? What are you saying? And compare that to the George Floyd riots. Oh, yeah. Oh, And, and Black Lives Matter and, and the corruption surrounding
11: How many professors and students got canceled right around the time of George Floyd? I mean, like I had a friend, uh, a conservative professor I'd been fending for years. He killed himself after getting canceled for a, a really tame joke uh, uh, at UNCW, partially because we were so overwhelmed with with demands for help so right now if this is a change that's going to last I, I I welcome it, but I'm pretty am pretty skeptical it's actually going to be. Given, I mean, just in the the last year, when you saw Kyle Duncan get shouted down at Stanford, when you saw Robbie George shouted down at, at the, San Francisco State University, was practically cheering on people who responded violently to Riley Gaines. So they got a they got a lot to prove before I believe that this newfound discovery of, of a belief in freedom of speech is is meaningful at all.
3: What about I think another example is Black Lives Matter. Have you ever seen an organization? That had more allegations, proven allegations of corruption. Millions of dollars just disappeared. People have just re- resigned. Houses bought, never going to any cause that we know of. And even the corporations that donated to them have not expressed outrage. Remember, wounded warriors. Yeah, they had a, They had what many people thought was too big of a celebration to to honor their uh, to honor their donors and showed a guy coming, repelling down the. Uh, down the the building. They fired everybody. It was a big scandal, almost destroyed the foundation. Yep. They came all the way back. But why don't we have that same outrage on Black Lives Matter? Because people are afraid of being labeled a racist.
11: Yeah. And that's the the point about canceling the American mind is that basically what we're saying is it's devastating to the health of a democracy if people are terrified to say what they really think. And if people were being authentic and honest, it wouldn't look... The, the national discussion would look anything like it uh, does today. But even, like, even actually, especially on the left, people on the left are most terrified of their most extreme members. I just
3: well, my last question, probably uh, the most, the best, emblematic. Where we were at, the president of the United States was once President Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. If you were wearing a hat that said "Make America Great," it, you were inciting, yes, you were triggering people. Yeah, I mean, think about that. Yeah, he got seventy million votes, even yeah. in losing. Yeah, you're triggering people for representing your president.
11: Yeah, well, and and that's the thing. It's kind of like these are the same people on campus who are complaining about microaggressions and stochastic like verbal terrorism, and now when they're actually cheering on real terrorism, you should never buy again the idea that these people are you know that faint of heart. And remember that it was more or less a tactic just to win arguments against people they didn't like.
3: And the whole thing is, you say we're not arguing anymore. We don't we don't debate a topic. Nope. We ignore each other. We cancel each other. How important would it be to engage? You and I disagree on something. Yep. Instead of just not bringing it up, do you think we should go back to engaging on it?
11: In, we'd be an infinitely healthier country. And one of the things we try to point out is all the things we can do to argue towards truth because guess what? We can actually solve things if we argue with the with the idea that we're going to get to what's true. to things.
3: Oh, yeah, of course. And there's there's you might – hey, a third of the way – I I agree disagree with you two-thirds. But a third of you – I do, do think that – People need health insurance. I do feel bad for people that can't afford it. I don't know if we should have universal because it's going to drop the quality. Let's talk about it. If I say we shouldn't have universal, it doesn't mean I hate poor people or minorities. So we got to get back to that.
11: Yeah, and if we could talk – if we could have real conversations where we're not just trying to cancel each other, we could fix major problems in the country, for
3: that matter, in the world. Right, and do you you believe some donors will put pressure on universities to straighten out?
11: I I definitely know that they will. I also hope that they try to fund some alternatives. A University of Texas at Austin, for example, is an experiment that's going on right now that's trying to become like a a, a non-ideological Harvard.
3: And also the Huntsman family stopped yep. financing the Wharton School of Business at University of yep. Pennsylvania because of their lack of statement and support from Israel. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mormons sticking up for the Israelis. Yeah,
11: <gasps> uh, Harvard finished dead last in our campus free speech rankings this year. University of Pennsylvania finished second to last. And this is a really rigorous study that we do. So they got a lot to prove. Where do we get those rankings? Uh, at, at thefire.org.
3: All right. Uh, Greg? Lukianov. L- Lukianov. Lukianov. Thank you very much. I missed somewhat of a syllable there. Uh, <laughs> it spelled weird. He's the president of the Foundation for the Individual Rights and Expression. Thanks so much, Greg. Such a pleasure.
2: Back. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we have so much to talk about, and there's so much going on with war. I do have to tell you that November 7th, my book comes out, Teddy and Booker T. Talk about two people that want to make America better, especially when it comes to race and education. Uh, the way they work together, I don't think it's often told, and that's why I'm going to be going on the road after November 7th and signing Teddy and Booker T. You can pre order BrianKilmeade.com, and you get a pre signed, too. Uh, and pre-personalized. I'll be at the Vogel, November 9th in New Jersey, Red Bank, New Jersey. I'll be in Ponte Vedra the next day, a few days later, the Villages, Vero Beach, Madison, Connecticut, Brentwood, Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee, then back to Bayshore on Thanksgiving, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, doing a live show, Holland, Michigan, a live show where I talk about all my books and Patriotic, inspirational, motivational day. Skokie, Illinois, and Joelette, Illinois, all doing live shows. You can get tickets at bryankilmead.com and then VIP opportunities where I get a chance to meet you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.
2: From the Fox News radio studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmead.
3: Hi, everyone. Welcome back, Brian Kilmeade. Show. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. We're back in action. I know we're all glued to the war in Israel. We'll get to that. We got to get a House Speaker. We'll understand that. That'll be fantastic, wouldn't it? Would it be great to crack down on the border? Meanwhile, the 2024 election is moving right along. We also have ex- examples of uh, what else we could be talking about, and that is uh, what is happening. Uh, what is happening not only with the former president and all his cases, the documents case as it relates to President Biden. It is moving. And Robert Hur's investigation and interview over the course of the president in two days left him evidently a lot of questions. And the president's either got to disavow what he said before or just flat out continue to lie. Because it looks like his documents were being moving around like they accused Trump of moving everything around. But I'm not going to get to that yet as one of the big three. But it is going to be important. I'll try to touch on that this hour. So let's get to it.
2: with the stories you need to know it's brian's big three number three the current rules of the house
4: have facilitated a handful of republicans being able to determine what gets voted on in the house of representatives and that undermines the interests of the american people
3: yeah that is uh hakeem jeffries trying to say hey why don't i be co-speaker House of Chaos. Will Jim Jordan be the next speaker? If not, will anybody be the next speaker? Will they get the temporary guy to be the new speaker? We'll talk about it. Number two.
5: We're now second in Iowa, second in New Hampshire, second in South Carolina. We're going to keep on moving. Look, Americans get the fact that they need a new generational conservative leader because they don't want a President Kamala Harris.
3: 2024, the Republicans begin to make their Middle Eastern stance known and report their fundraising numbers. We'll bring you the, le- the latest polls, positions, and more.
7: Number one. Is Iran behind the Gaza war? I don't want to get into classified information, but to be very blunt with you. There is no clear evidence of that.
3: Well, you can be blunt with us, but don't tell us classified information. It looks like they are. If you just ask him, the foreign minister went and met with Hamas's leader on Saturday. I wonder what they discussed. The invasion could begin today. There are already calls to pull it back before it even gets started. And some of them coming from us. We're going to bring you all the aspects of the war in Israel. And one of the big dangers in my mind, and maybe yours too, is What about here at home? We made it clear we're on Israel's side. We also made it clear our border is wide open. And you could blame Congress like the president does. It's his decisions that led to this. And everyone, come one, come all, from hundreds of countries. And there's been hundreds on the terror watch list. Joining us now is Paul Morrow. He wrote a story about this, retired NYPD inspector and uh, an attorney and founder of OpsDesk.org. Paul, how concerned should we all be? being that we made our stance known, obviously, with Israel, that some of our enemies are coming here?
12: Well, I don't think that we should be at the heightened level of alert we were during, let's say, the height of ISIS and uh, the aftermath of 9-11. But we would be kidding kidding ourselves if we didn't think that we're not in a new world again of counterterrorism, Because we have vulnerabilities we didn't have in the past, and you go right to it, Brian, which is the border. When I was working counterterrorism, I did it for 15 years, a clean skin, as we would call it, somebody about whom we had absolutely no intelligence, there was no footprint or anything, but we were getting word from through the the grapevine that this person had come over the border and might have a bad guy footprint that would have caused a major spin-up of resources, of forensics, of sourcing, uh etc. et cetera. Now, not only do we have that regularly, but we are inviting them in, paying their way to New York, and putting them up in midtown Manhattan. We're supposed to be the number one terrorist target. So you have that vector that we didn't have in the past, and only a fool could ignore it.
3: Two Iranians came in over the weekend and two from Lebanon, and they're in their 20s. One was in his 40s. Uh, why And they were on the terror watch list. The last two from Iran were on the terror watch list. I mean, why wouldn't they come? I mean, these terrorists are resourceful to begin with. We made it easy.
12: We did make it easy. And look, there's a history of this. Iran has struck in South America two bombings of Jewish locations in Argentina, Argentina in the 90s. They're perfectly willing and capable to project power that way. What people also don't understand is these groups have a permanent presence Down in Latin America, you don't hear about it too much, but in the tri-border region of South America, which is Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina, there is a lawless area. It's known as a tri-border region where essentially anything goes, and it's just a, a competing series of mafia groups, for lack of a better term. One of those groups, in fact, the best organized of those groups is Hezbollah. Hezbollah has a significant presence there. So... When you look at a uh, group that might look to come through our soft white underbelly here, which is our southern border, they're already staged there. You have the former vice president of Venezuela is a reportedly Hezbollah-linked guy, a guy named Asami, who is uh, one of the reasons he's looked at by the American government, who wants to get a hold of him. He's sanctioned as a drug kingpin. He also is known to provide, allegedly, passports false passports to, ready, Hamas and Hezbollah, okay? I mean, why would the name Hassan, why would the vice president of Venezuela be a guy named Hassami? all right? So he's. it's a very murky situation down there. It's right south of our border. The impetus, the motives, the means are there. And as this thing ramps up overseas and America is tied to it, there's no question that this is something we really have to pay attention to, and the administration just doesn't seem to be.
3: And by the way, you probably don't know this, but about 20 minutes ago, I just came across the New York Times reporting that we are going to allow uh, – ease some sanctions on Venezuela, uh, let them flow some oil our direction in exchange for – they promise to open up their elections. So why do we keep on doing deals with these horrible regimes? I, I don't
12: understand. If Brian, I have to be honest with you. Normally, I have some sort of a theory I can float. I don't have a theory as to why the Democrats seem to tilt so heavily towards Iran. Now, look, it doesn't mean that I think the Sunni world, Iranian, Iran is Shia. And that's one of the tells, by the way, that Iran is at least to some extent behind what we're seeing in Israel, Israel now. Because only Iran could coordinate between Hamas, which is a Sunni entity, and hezbollah which is a shia entity okay it's like the the daddy making the two siblings get along a little bit okay so iran is involved i don't know what it is but it goes back in america despite the fact that we had a hostage crisis in the 1970s with iran we just never seem to have learned from it there seems to be a belief among progressives that somehow or other with enough love and tlc iran will come around that the mullahs will see the light I've dealt with these people. I've run the cases. They're wrong. It's not going to happen until there's a regime change over there and mm-hmm. they're kidding themselves. And I'm
3: probably you probably just I'm going to give you a reaction because you're a lawyer and you're uh, and you're a former uh, NYPD investigator. But, you know, what's just enlightened to me. Andy McCarthy did some research. Do you know that prisoner exchange that we had with Iran? It turns yeah. out they were uh, they were arrested here. And since being that they have green cards, they get to stay. So once they're yeah. out, they are still here. Do you believe this?
12: I, of course I believe it because of the way, and, you know, I have to say of all of the folks, you know, and I don't like the sort of third world banana republic. We're going to look at the people who came before us, the administration before us, and vindictively go after them and and, and try to impeach people and indict people, et cetera. But I have to tell you, Alexander, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas has got to be held to account. I have never seen such a dereliction of duty. The border is his job. He comes up with no answers, no responses. He's defiant to Congress. He'd lied about his own people supposedly whipping migrants who were coming across the border. He he knew it was a lie. He's lost his own agency who don't trust him. This right. is a guy that's got to go, and he's a big—he's a major problem.
3: Right, absolutely. So you, what did you think when you saw all these protests in the street, pro-Hamas protests in the street, against Israel, the colonizers? You know, there was no pro-Al Qaeda rallies Uh, across, you know, if there were, there would be pictures taken and basically would expand the most wanted list. What what was your take on the size and scope of some of these rallies?
12: So this has been going on for a while, Brian. And as I said, having done this work, I saw it develop. The anti-Israel cause, and that's not exclusively Palestinian, by the way, but for the most part in the Arab world it is. What people also don't realize is that most of the Middle Eastern regimes Despite their lip service have done nothing for the Palestinian people and don't care a lick for them, right? That's just the truth. But what they have their their cause here in America got wind of the fact that they could make common cause with the progressive left and tie themselves to for a lack of a better term the 1619 wing of the Democratic Party. Right. Okay? And this precedes the 1619 issue, you know, it precedes BLM. This goes back 10-15 years at least, but it was a force multiplier for them. And they realized that if they hooked themselves to that cause, that they would have much more exposure, much more power, and they would get a lot more attention. And that has been fomented primarily on campuses. That's been the incubator for this kind of thing. And it's clearly worked. The professors buy into it. The administrators buy into it. And ultimately, they get their students to buy into it. Paul Mara
3: with us. So Claudine Gay, in a desperate attempt to put down the bad publicity she's getting for the 20 students' unions who put out a letter in support and in uh, of Palestine of the Palestinians and against Israel said this over the weekend. Cut 27.
1: So let me be clear: our university rejects terrorism. That includes the barbaric atrocities perpetrated by Hamas. Our university rejects hate—hate hate of Jews, hate of Muslims, hate of any group of people based on their faith their national origin, or any aspect of their identity. Our university rejects the harassment or intimidation of individuals based on their beliefs. And our university embraces a commitment to free expression. That commitment extends even to views that many of us find objectionable, even outrageous. We do not punish or sanction people for expressing such views. But that is a far cry for endorsing them.
3: feel better
12: so she is in a tough spot, and it's a spot of their own making. Harvard is again you know really where this is playing out, and related to that is the affirmative action decision that just came down from scotus she they have to she's trying to play a middle a middle game. That realistically that you can 't bridge that divide all right, because she 's got what could only be called a very vociferous bordering on radical element in her student body. I mean, look, I went to Harvard, okay, I have a graduate degree from the kennedy school i 'm embarrassed to say it because of how crazy the place has got, but she knows that she 's going to have all that donor money dry up if she doesn 't at least give lip service to the, what we all would judge to right. be the sign of sanity here, which is that the Israelis have been unfortunately victimized. And where this is going to ground for all of us is the propaganda war that so, we're entering into
3: now. A couple of things. I want to bring it over to another area of expertise, and that's the legal profession. Today, a judge is going to rule whether Trump will have a gag order put on him as it relates to his documents case. What if they do? What if he violates it? Where do you, how do you see this heading?
12: Tough call, you know. Judges don't like gag orders. First Amendment is the thing that makes America distinct in, in realistically, world history. It's the, it's the most unique aspect of our legal system, and so judges are very reticent to, to step on that. On the other hand, um, you know, Donald Trump does have a habit of saying things that uh, judges don't like. Let's just be, you know, factual here. So, those are the two va- countervailing things. I think that, you know, if you notice that uh, the, the former president has dialed it back a bit. And I think that, you know, his legal team has probably been telling him, Mr. President, there's not a whole lot of purchase in infuriating the, the judge here and everybody involved. So if he does impose it, I think it'll be with caveats because he has to recognize, Mr. President, you have to campaign. And so you know what? He has to be able to speak and he has to be able to speak about this case. You could even see a collateral case, for lack of a better term, a, a a whole new issue opened up as Trump fights on this front to say my ability to campaign for next year's election is being stepped on by this case. And I'm taking that to court as well. And you can have that. Wow. You could actually have him sue over a violation of his First Amendment rights. And you know what? Nothing would surprise me. The way and I know he's suing down. Christopher
3: Steele over in the U.K. So over the weekend, we found out because there's so much news in this war taking all of our attention and it should that Robert Hur interviewed President Biden over the course of two days. And at which time, reports are coming out that there's contradictory statements all around the Biden world about those documents, what they took, how they took them, and where they moved, where they really just stumbled upon. That case seems to be blowing up in everybody's face. We don't know for sure because there's almost no leaks. But Congressman Mike Turner on on Face the Nation this weekend, who is is on the investigative committee in the House, said this about what he knows so far. Cut 30.
6: But when you look at the documents, both the the classification level and the subject matter, um, both sides, Trump and Biden's documents, if they had been released in the public or gotten into the hands of nefarious parties, would be damaging to the United States national security. When I look at those documents, there are documents on both sides equally egregious that would have negative consequences to our means methods techniques and and our allies now in this instance i think president biden needs the same consequence that 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 they pursue with with president trump that the actions are, are the same and in this instance if you notice Indictment? you're getting leaked.
3: yeah she's like what, what are you talking about they she had no idea that joe biden and his corvette and the garage and the penn center uh and the university of delaware and his uh, other documents with his lawyer in Boston matters. She just thinks it's all Donald Trump doing this. If you're moving documents around over the course of 40, 50, 40 years, you've got a problem.
12: You do. And it just shows you that it's been a part, it's a pattern and practice of his just to leave this stuff around. And, uh, you know, as you, as you know, it was actually a lot less centralized than it was in Trump's case. You know, he had them in the garage. I'm at the Penn center yeah. reportedly, you know, other places. So, you gotta wonder, you know, what what was really going on there? Was it just absent mindedness or was he stashing documents for some reason that we're not aware of? But the fact that she's so shocked that he could be yes. in the uh in the region of an indictment just shows you how tilted this entire process is. And one of the things that you have to have to say is that Republicans gotta get their act together here because the hammer that we have is the House. A DOJ, uh, in the House, that's right. Because mm-hmm. the, the hammer we have is the House, because, you know, gotcha. the, let's face facts. We're not entirely trusting DOJ to do these cases these days. The investigation in the House, that's the only reason. Brian, don't kid yourself. It's the only reason that the Hunter Biden plea deal blew up was exactly. that the committee well, did that data dump of, of documents unasked, shoved it into the case. The judge had no choice with that evidence because it was public.
3: Paul, thanks, thanks so much. You're going to have to end it there. That's a great point. But he's got legal problems, even though the rest of the media doesn't want to pay attention to it. But these idiots in the House, those eight, are the reason why these investigations are moving forward. Unbelievable. Uh, your call's next, then Josh Hour on the latest on the Race to Get a Speaker. Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
8: I feel very good about where Jim Jordan is at. Uh, he, he has been an integral part of, of our team when we took the majority, helping us get the majority. The real challenge here is, and I know a lot of people out there are afraid that will Republicans break off and go work with Democrats, the only reason anybody's even talking about that is because eight Republican members worked with every single Democrat to remove me from speaker and put us into this tailspin and all based upon keeping government open.
3: Yeah, that was uh, Kevin McCarthy with me earlier just saying, they listen, I'll, I'll try to get this going. Vote for Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan supported me. We've had clashes in the past, but when Chip Roy, Jim Jordan, Scott Perry got together to work through with Kevin McCarthy, I thought for sure there'll be no motion to vacate that would have any teeth, but instead it did. So eight people ousted Kevin McCarthy two weeks ago. They tried to get Steve Scalise after a five-day break. He couldn't get the day. He couldn't get the votes after a day. Then Jim Jordan, who got less votes, now is up to 200. He's at least 17 short. And they were supposed to have a vote at 6:30. He could easily postpone it. But how long are we supposed to go without a House? I'll talk to Josh Krasner in detail about that. Uh, he's a Fox News Radio political analyst with Axios. Don't move.
2: A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
8: I appointed um, Patrick McHenry because after 9-11, it was a new procedure. You want the continuity of government to work. He should already have that authority. Congress should be able to be moving forward because a speaker doesn't change the outcome of a vote. Doesn't the bills come through committees. And while we're electing a new speaker, Patrick McHenry should be able to have the continuity of government working right now. It was the Democrats who fought to keep Patrick McHenry from having the authority in the first place.
3: Josh uh, Krashauer joins us now. That was Kevin McCarthy on with me. On Fox & Friends today, he is fully behind Jim Jordan. The, the vote will be tomorrow, not tonight. Uh, and let's bring in Josh, who's also editor-in-chief of Jewish uh, Insider and with Axios, too. Josh, welcome back.
13: Hey, Brian. Good to be with you.
3: So, I mean, it's easy to lose track of what's going on with the Israeli war happening. It's easy to lose track of what's happening with the speaker. But this is really getting embarrassing, I think, for the whole country. In the beginning, embarrassing for Republicans. But I think it's embarrassing for the country.
13: Yeah, it's not giving the Republican Party a good look, and, and it shows that they're very dysfunctional and they're having trouble governing. And uh, you saw that when you know a handful of rebels ousted Kevin McCarthy from the speakership, and I, I'm very skeptical, Brian, that Jim Jordan is going to be able to get – the same amount of votes, so you can only afford to lose five, five or four or five House Republicans, and I, uh, you know, there there are a lot of rank and file Republicans trying to get in line behind Jim Jordan, but there are a lot of skeptics, especially those who are in tough tough seats that uh, that that have a lot of Democrats in them, uh, swing seats. Uh, it's going to be challenging to have Jordan unify the Republican Party. I mean, this is a guy who was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. He was a rebel uh, and one of the more right-wing lawmakers when he first came to Congress. And it's just really tough to, to make that sell across the conference. See I, don't I think think
3: that, I see, I don't think moderates, Republican moderates, will have a problem voting for a speaker. I don't think—I mean, we haven't even had this road before. Yeah, Jim Jordan was the guy that's offered, I want to get our country back on track. I don't know if you lose that many seats with that. I think you lose uh, I think you lose seats more with. on the, the abortion test, absolutely. Uh, when you talk about things like those issues where you stand on Ukraine, yeah. but I, I couldn't see voting for Jim Jordan as hurting somebody in a primary or excuse me, in a general.
13: Well, Brian, I think I think it really depends that if Jordan did become a speaker, how how would he govern? Would he support funding for Ukraine? Would he support government, you know, government shutdown or, or actually support funding some deal to fund government? I mean, the reality is when you have divided government, uh, there has to be some degree of pragmatism in in, in your leadership. And uh, McCarthy was like threading that needle throughout his tenure uh, as speaker, and he, you know, was. Yeah, you know, always had headaches, but he until the till, till the showdown happened, he was able to balance those interests between the conservatives and the more pragmatist pragmatic members of his caucus. The question is how would Jordan govern, how would he lead? And there there is worry among those who are in tough reelections whether um, you know, they, they would be more vulnerable, uh whether whether they'd be able to win re election with a more conservative, more outspoken leader, um, as like Jim Jordan as as their
9: speaker.
3: So let's say you're right, and Jordan doesn't have the votes. He has less votes than He has less votes than McCarthy, and he can't get across the finish line. Democrats are beginning to consider, uh, reportedly, possibly letting Patrick McHenry uh, pass critical legislation, even though he's a temporary speaker. Do you think empowering Patrick McHenry might unparalyze the House?
13: Well, look, Brian, that's one option that, 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 that Republicans have discussed of trying to kind of give McHenry more powers in this interim role. I'm not sure if that's possible, uh, but he is someone who is very well liked across the conference. He's someone who's shown he has the ability to lead and get things done, but he's also shown no inclination of wanting to be speaker, wanting to actually have the job full time. So that could be a holdover plan if, if we get to the point where there's uh, no consensus and there are enough Republicans that are willing to block Jordan if he, if he's, you know, if he, if he takes it to the floor and um, can't get the vote votes, But that uh, that 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 would be like you said at the outset, Brian. That's a recipe for gridlock, and something's got to give. You got to govern. You got to legislate. And Republicans need to make a you know get their act together sooner, or otherwise they're going to suffer quite quite significant political consequences.
3: I mean, yeah, they got to say, listen, we gave you two years to lead, and what you did, you couldn't even lead yourselves. And the thing is, Josh, there are less separation between Matt Gates and Kevin McCarthy than was between the Squad and Nancy Pelosi. But the Squad never did anything like this. How was Pelosi able to? Do you know how she was able to corral such different thinkers in her?
13: Well, look, she she was a tough boss, and she was certainly able to like kind of uh, use the punishment, frankly, political punishment, and uh, you know, them, you know, she was that that was one of her her, her legacies as as, as speaker that she kept kept the party in line. And they, you know, full well, Brian, that they have quite quite hard left elements of their party, the Squad, and they actually have moderates that that are much more. Uh, you know, pragmatic, but, but she was able to keep for the most part, the party together, though. though she had her problems too. Uh, if you remember in her final year, like she really couldn't, uh, you know, keep the progressives in the same same position on spending and, and what what the progressive agenda is. You know, trying to get more more money, government spending uh, that the, on the progressive side with some of the more uh, pragmatic demands of the moderates. So she had her own issues in the final year as speaker. But um, it, it's not easy when you have a such a narrow majority as the Republicans do. It's hard for anyone. Uh, Pelosi had a narrow maturity as speaker in her final term. She had her own challenges. It's even tougher for, for, for any Republican.
3: I want you to hear what Hakeem Jeffries proposed yesterday, how he would help out. Cut 28.
13: We
4: want to ensure that votes are taken on bills that have substantial Democratic support and substantial Republican support so that the extremists aren't able to dictate the agenda. The current rules of the House have facilitated a handful of Republicans being able to determine what gets voted on in the House of Representatives, and that undermines the interests of the American people. We can change the rules to facilitate bipartisanship, and that should be the starting point of our conversation.
3: So they said, if you start bringing bills up on a bipartisan basis, basically give up many elements of the majority.
13: I mean, that would be a tough pill to swallow. If you're, if you're any, I mean, that, that's what Matt Gates would w- w- and that, that's that that is that that was the end result of. The rebels uh, pushing out McCarthy and, and, and creating chaos just to have a, a much more, uh, damp, you know, more 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 bipartisan effort and, and marginalizing the conservatives uh, that that would be a lot of egg on their face. I don't think we're going to get there. I don't think enough any Republicans would go for that. But it goes to show how how little thought, frankly, Brian was put into this I rebellion. Like you I mean that that is actually being seen as a possible outcome if, if Republicans can't. Figure out who their next speaker is going to be. That you know, maybe find a few few moderate Republicans that would try to do some power sharing arrangement with Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, that is a major step backwards, and it shows how little tactical thought, how little strategy was put into uh, this movement. Just to, it was it was pure nihilism, and now they're finding out it's a lot harder to govern and, and find anyone who can succeed more than more than McCarthy did in his. Name.
3: So now, if, when they were able to bundle things up, they're going to want more Ukraine aid. They're going to want more Israeli aid, and they want to like, like, uh, lace in Taiwan. So there's a lot of Republicans digging in against the Ukraine. Where's that going to end up? Because people like Kevin McCarthy, you know, Lindsey Graham, um, uh, others have got uh, Michael Waltz. Get it? You get? You know? You you might not love the way the president's running this war. Slow walking weapon systems, low lowballing their chances of success, then overstating what they can do on a surge. Whatever it is, but Russia winning should not be on the table, and that's what happened. How does this, are they going to put it all together in one aid package?
13: That's being discussed. The White House, I think, is looking to come up with something that they can give conservatives, border security, something they can give to the the, the fell Democrats, Ukraine, you know, make sure that Ukraine aid continues, uh, support for Israel and the funding to help, them fight off, uh, you know, get the weapon systems and the defense funding they need. That that makes a lot of sense. That's how typically government works, how, how the Congress works. It's bipartisanship. One side gets something, one other side gets something, and you put it all together. Um, we'll see what ends up emerging out of the Republican leadership. I think uh, Jordan may be more skeptical of a, a bipartisan package if he ended up emerging as Speaker, but that's the kind of legislation the White House would support, and it's something that a lot of members of Congress, certainly a majority in both the House and Senate, could, could support as well. So
3: the AP has a poll out, and the people. People, what, what do you think of the country's direction? 78% say the country is off course. That should not bode well for the President of the United States, who now has a 38% approval rating. Donald Trump in the same polls got 37%, which is stunning, since he hasn't really made a decision, but he's made some speeches, but he still leads, leads, leads on the real clear average. Now, the other presidential nominees trail Trump by about 40 points, but head to head, Nikki Haley beats Biden by four to six points over the last few polls. How do you reconcile the two?
13: Well, look, the, when you look at Trump and Biden's favorability rates, they're, they're about as low as any major party nominees we've seen historically. Biden, Biden, a lot of worries about Biden's age, as we've talked about on the show, and, and Trump is deeply unpopular, and that's what... You know that's why you have a tie. That's why uh, you know you look at the the general election polling and they're neck and neck. Someone like Nikki Haley, who's much more uh, well liked and has some support even among moderates uh, on the Democratic side, uh, she you know look she 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 would be the most electable Republican right now. Um, she's someone who has not kind of uh, pandered to the far right elements of the party. And, and look, but I, I don't know if that's the mood that Republican primary voters are in. To nominate someone like Haley. But she had a good fundraising quarter. She's had momentum in, 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 in both the debates and the polls. And she's someone who, if she could consolidate support and other candidates drop out and get behind her, it could, could make for an interesting race. But Trump right now is still the pretty still the dominant force within the Republican Party. Primarily.
3: Yeah, and he's in Iowa today. Uh, his campaign has raised $17.7 million last quarter. Over the last three months, $46 million, $38 million cash in hand. The finances got $20 million in the last six weeks. Pence, raised less than $1.2 million, and in the three weeks after his campaign announcement, uh, overall, he now has a $600,000 debt. Is he in trouble?
13: Yeah, I mean, anyone who's not raising uh, the requisite amount of money and spending more than they're bringing in, you know, is in trouble. And Pence is not, you know, he's caught between a rock and a hard place where he doesn't get support from the anti-Trump folks because he served in the administration and he's not getting support from from conservatives, they, they view him as something of a apostate. So, you know, Pence is in trouble financially and, and politically. Uh, but I think there's going to be a consolidation of the field that, that's going to be necessary. Uh, we'll get closer to Iowa, we'll get closer to New Hampshire. Republicans are going to want to have a clearer sense of their options and uh, their candidates that are just not not registering in polls, not getting momentum. I think there's going to be pressure uh, on them to drop out of the race
2: and consolidate behind a few candidates.
3: Governor Christie they says his low burn rate he has zero debt and $3.9 million. He wants to go through, according to you guys, at Axios. He wants to last through New Hampshire, do well, use that momentum the rest of the way. What do you think of that strategy? Is Josh give me the sound treatment, or is he just running the gas? Okay. Uh, I will tell you, I think it's a great strategy. <laughs> I mean, for Chris Christie to keep such a, a lean machine – and still have 3.9 million in hand, and be his best asset to a ton of television, reg- registering in some polls, leading in some polls. Uh, the the rest of the cast in New Hampshire, I think that's pretty good. I don't know about the burn rate with DeSantis. Obviously, he had to reconfigure some things. But the good news for the president, he's got 71 million. It's pretty good for that, but it doesn't compare to Donald Trump's 90 million as a sitting president in 2020, can same, uh, same roughly the same time. As we look forward to the other election, the other poll numbers has DeSantis at 13 percent, Nikki at 10, Vivek at 7, Pence at 4, 3 for Christie, 1 for Scott. That is in the 2024 GOP presidential poll. That according to the AP. We're going to take a time out and come back and finish up with more of your calls. If you want to see me on the road, and I know you do, my book comes out, Teddy and Booker T, November 7th. So I'll be in Red Bank, New Jersey, November 10th. Some tickets are still available. Then I'm going to be heading all over the country, all the way to uh, Punta Vedra, Florida, uh, Florida. I'll be in Joliet, uh, uh, Joliet, uh, Illinois. I'll be in Michigan. It's going to be a wide – I'm going to be everywhere. So hopefully I'll get to see you on stage or in person at a book sign. Just go to BrianKilme.com and set up your reservation. Don't move.
2: Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Do you believe that Hamas must be eliminated entirely?
7: Yes, I do. But there needs to be a Palestinian authority. There needs to be a
3: a path to a Palestinian state. But the two-state solution is dead. I mean, there's just you just killed it. You can't live next to Gaza and you can't you after what you just saw in Gaza. Are you going to say the West Bank that's fine. Just put the Palestinian state there. The two-state solution is dead. And what they were saying from the PA was, oh, no, the Israel killed it. Israel didn't kill it. If you just showed an ounce of productivity as opposed to terrorism, there wouldn't be a problem. And one thing is uh, it's an epic fail on in Israel's, uh, on Israel's security. What I wouldn't, didn't fully realize until this weekend was how long it took the Israelis to react to the hit on their country where they lost 1,200 people. I mean, the slaughter of their own people— When you looked at the manual as translated, if I'm going to believe the translation, Hamas thought the Israelis would respond in three to five minutes. Not only did they not respond, they hit nine military bases, were able to penetrate it, and kill almost everyone there and take pictures before they got there. They actually did a selfie in front of one of them, and then they taped it, and they they want those promos out there, even if it resulted in their death. They lost a ton of people. They lost thousands of people. But they don't care, and they're losing them now, and they don't care. And they're moving them down south, and they're telling others not to go, and they're pushing Egypt to open up their corridor. Okay, open up the corridor. We were walking video this morning on uh, overhead. I assume it was drone video. It wasn't that big of a crowd there. So a lot of people just don't want to leave, or they're not allowed to leave. The President Biden interview. Good. You got the interview. You probably had to agree to not ask him any tough questions, make them all yes or no. You just heard it. Don't. Better not. It's incredible. Here's Tom Cotton on how the president's policies brought him to this place. Look, President Biden did not invent Middle East turmoil, but they have the Abraham Accords and they were heading in the right direction. And the Hamas attack might have been planned. But man, would they have executed it if Trump was around? Cut six.
9: It's the Obama-Biden policy that has emboldened Iran now, going back more than a decade, giving them hundreds of billions of dollars in sanctions relief. And I have to say the arguments from John Kirby now are so unpersuasive and so disingenuous to be offered only in bad faith. Everybody knows that Iran got $6 billion in ransom. And as you said, Shannon, that $6 billion freed up $6 billion that otherwise would have gone to other purposes. They got $10 billion of payments through Iraq that this administration approved. They got over $40 billion uh, of relief and just refusal to enforce to the max the oil sanctions on Iran. So this administration has emboldened Iran time and time again.
3: Yeah, and Senator Tom Cotton knows uh, what's going on. He said this all along the way. The way, the the key to Middle East peace is tough on Iran. That's it. Tough on Iran. Lee in Florida. Hey, Lee.
5: Brian, so here's my two quick comments. First being that I'm not 100 percent sure that the Navy isn't being moved to the Med so as not to allow Israel to attack Iran, and yes, I do think we would bring down their planes, number one. Number two, I don't understand what the turmoil was with uh, Netanyahu and his and his judiciary, but they had a lot of people go on strike, a lot of military people go on strike, and they weren't reporting. And that's what made them so vulnerable. And I don't hear a lot of people talking
3: about that. Yeah, Lee, I was talking about it initially. I seem to have gotten to the war footing, but I'll bring that up more. I mean it was the turmoil leading up to it that left Israel vulnerable. And you he maybe had to do this he had to do a coalition with a far we're not used to this system. They had to do a coalition with that far right government. My sense is that Netanyahu didn't really want the judiciary reforms. It was part of the deal he cut. And I don't think he was totally caught by surprise with the riots and the demonstrations in the West Bank. But I cannot believe that they thought Gaza was sealed. How could they possibly be lulled into that? Good points, though. I'm glad you brought them up. Here's what Frank McKenzie said about what Iran didn't do. General McKenzie, cut nine.
6: I, I believe it's likely they did not know the date or time of this particular attack, but Iran, by supporting Hamas with hundreds of millions of dollars down through the years, by providing them with equipment, by providing them with training, and and by supporting their ideology, is certainly the moral author of this attack. Even if they didn't know the exact time,
3: I think they knew exact time. I'll even go further than the general, Brian Kilmeade.